You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the nationwide protests, the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time. As always, the lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. And that carries over to our guests today. Our podcast today is about China, because if you're interested in national security law, then you really need to improve your understanding of China. Now, why? Well, think about it. We brought you podcasts on CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, and its role in blocking Chinese investment in certain U.S. companies. We brought you podcasts on executive orders that have blocked the sale and use of certain Chinese products, such as Huawei equipment. And we have talked repeatedly about the expansive powers of the president under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Recently, the president issued a new executive order on Hong Kong, possibly in response to China's entry into Hong Kong and its efforts to secure extradition of Hong Kong citizens to China. And the Trump administration has taken a strong public position against Chinese tech companies like TikTok and Huawei, citing privacy and national security concerns. This week, Secretary of State Pompeo said to reporters, quote, we want to see untrusted Chinese apps removed from U.S. app stores. To help us take on the complex topic of the U.S. relationship to China, our special guest today is Dean Chang. Dean Chang is the Heritage Foundation's Research Fellow on Chinese Political and Security Affairs, specializing in China's military and foreign policy, in particular its relationship with the rest of Asia and with the United States. He worked for 13 years as a senior analyst, first with SAIC, Science Applications International Corporation, and then with the China Studies Division for the Center for Naval Analysis, the federally funded research institute. Before entering the private sector, Dean was an analyst in the International Security and Space Program at the Office of Technology Assessment, a congressional agency. Welcome, Dean. We're glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Our special guest host today is Mr. Harvey Rishikoff, Uh, One of our favorite people to have on the podcast, Harvey, is the Director of Cybersecurity at the Applied Research Laboratory for Intelligence and Security at the University of Maryland. He is a visiting law professor at Temple University. He is, uh, among a million other jobs, our favorite one to note is that he is the Senior Counselor to the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you. Harvey, we're glad you're here. Um, Dean, Sun Tzu wrote that if you know your enemy, you know yourself, and you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Let's talk about this, because at this moment, China does seem to be our enemy. Um, Do you think we know China? Well, let's begin with the reality that we're talking about a civilization that's 5,000 years old and 1.3 billion people. So um, we no, it's difficult to know China almost under any circumstance. But the reality is that um, we as a nation really don't have that many Chinese language specialists. And it ha- while it's been a focus of some studies, when you compare it to the Cold War and the number of people, the number of institutions, the amount of money we spent really trying to learn about the Soviet Union, we know China a lot less well today than we did the Soviet Union. Now, that being said, it is, on the other hand, useful to note, we have more trade, we have more exchange, we have more tourism. So in some respects, we know them better simply because we have more interactions. But China is such a different country. 
uh, from anything else we've ever confronted before. It does not come out of the European tradition. It doesn't believe in the rule of law. Um, it has uh, no real civil society. It's a very, very different creature. Um, and we have trouble getting our heads around all that. Well, I might be one of those people because as I read The Three-Body Problem, absolutely one of my favorite books, I had to pause in, when I was reading footnotes about the Middle Kingdom. Um, my scant at best understanding of history um, is really challenged. How does China view itself in terms of its role as an economic power and as a player in the global information technology race? I should say this, that we're recording today on August 7th. Um, and today is the day on which we have new executive orders banning um, TikTok, uh, among other Chinese technologies. So it's interesting that you're reading the three-body problem and the issues that you raise. So about the issue of the Middle Kingdom, if you're familiar with European history, we always had balance of power. The rise of a Napoleon, the rise of a Hitler, the rise of a Kaiser led to multiple countries coalescing into uh, alliances that would counter the rise of a European hegemon. 5,000 years of Asian history never saw that. Instead, you had a central kingdom or middle kingdom, Zongguo, China's name for itself, which can be translated as either middle kingdom or central kingdom. And then a group of tributary states all along its periphery that rather than coalescing into alliances to balance against China, instead gave tribute, and if you're a political science background, you bandwagoned with China. You didn't um, oppose it, you went along with it. That is 5,000 years of Asian history, and that's what China is very accustomed to, to dominating the international system as it understood it, certainly within Asia. Um, and that is the approach it now seems to be taking towards the rest of the world. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, over the last couple of days has given several interviews to say China is not interested in displacing the United States. That's great language, but in its behavior, it is very clearly trying to dominate both Asia writ large, uh, whether it is the Philippines, whether it is South Korea, whether it is Thailand, but increasingly in its technological behavior, the rest of the world. I also just want to throw in an interesting observation from the three-body problem, which is that uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, uh, in a nutshell, aliens are coming and they're not friendly. And if you think about how that's usually treated in Western, especially American movies and literature, think of Bill Pullman standing on the wing of an F-15 in Independence Day, raising his fist and saying, we will not go gentle into that night. You know, this is our Independence Day. That's not how this book, which is written by a Chinese author, views the aliens who are coming. This is not a, we will rally around Earth and we will fight them in the asteroid belt and we will fight them out at Jupiter. This is, how do we survive? How, do we collaborate? Do we hide? Do we run away? That's a very different attitude because the Chinese are a very different culture. So I also highly endorse uh, The Three-Body Problem. We don't know the author, we don't, <laughs> but Elisa and I read this book and uh, I'm on the third one right now. Um, fascinating, and it's, it's, not, uh, it's not your typical 
alien stories. So all of you serious lawyers out there rolling your eyes, asking why we're talking about the invasion uh, from, from, the, uh, from the outside the solar system, uh, really do check it out. Um, but uh, thanks for that framework, Dean. Uh, given, given your view, given that view about uh, the, the difference between US culture, Chinese culture, um, how, what should our engagement be with China? How can we coexist competitively? And is constructive coexistence possible given China's economic practices like the forced transfer of intellectual property as the price of doing business? So you've really put your finger on the core question. On the one hand, we in China are not in a Cold War. I want to emphasize that. Because if you look at the sheer amount of trade alone, when we were in a Cold War with the Soviet Union, we had really no trade with them. We had no interaction with them except, essentially, nuclear arms control talks, right? Um, with China, we have a huge amount of trade. We are each other's top three trading partners. Um, we have huge numbers of students. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of Chinese students in the United States, tens of thousands of American students in China. There's tourism. There's uh, a variety of cultural exchanges. I mean, these are all very real. So the idea of decoupling, which you often hear, especially out of Washington, um, this idea that somehow we could basically take a meat cleaver and just cut the ties that, that link us together would not just be disruptive. It would be financially you know, horrific. Supply chains would be disruptive, et cetera. The problem is that given that intertwining, the Chinese are now exploiting that. And intellectual property is probably the single most important aspect, not simply because it's a lot of money involved, but because intellectual property is the lifeblood of the 21st century economy. That's how the Chinese see it. They see us living in an information age where the currency of power is the ability to generate and exploit information. And that's what intellectual property is at the end of the day, right? Information. So, and getting the Chinese to accept when they don't buy the rule of law, that they have to live by the same rules that all the rest of us do. How do you get that across to the Chinese? We've tried negotiating, we've tried finger wagging, we've tried a lot of other things. I think we have wound up with tariffs, not because it's a good solution. In fact, ultimately it's a tax on the American people, but because nothing else seems to have worked in terms of gentle suasion and um, uh, demarches and the rest. So given the financial and strategic issues at stake, this seems to be the path we're on, unfortunately. And let's zero in to talk specifically about the tech sector here. Can you tell us a little bit about the current situation, even though the current situation is a bit in flux, um, with Huawei and TikTok, and what you think about the administration's approach uh, narrowly with tech? So the Chinese economy is mixed. They themselves call it a uh, socialist market economy. So this is not the 1960s. Not every Chinese company is a state-owned enterprise. And in particular, Chinese companies, even the state-owned enterprise ones, don't have somebody on high saying, you will make, you know, company, you know, Red Dragon, you will make 60,000 left shoes. Uh, you know, uh, Mao's Sun factory, you will make 60,000 right shoes. They're much more sophisticated than that now. So first off, we have to recognize that a Huawei or a TikTok is in fact a private company in the sense that it is not state-owned, although 
who exactly owns Huawei is very, very murky. So that being said, these are companies that are at the cutting edge, maybe not bleeding edge, but cutting edge of advanced technology. Why do I say that? Huawei is all about 5G. And the fact that we're doing all of these conversations by Zoom and uh, Microsoft Teams and uh, WebEx, think about that. That's bandwidth. And 5G is about massive bandwidth. 5G a year ago was one of those, man, it'll be really cool to have it because I'll be able to download Titanic onto my phone in three seconds. Nice, but not necessary. Now, with all of this teleconferencing and everything else, bandwidth is key. And Huawei leads everyone. It's ahead of Ericsson and Nokia because it makes everything. It makes your cell phones, it makes computers, it makes servers and routers, and it makes the base stations. The problem is that the Chinese uh, have passed laws, and basically whether they had the law or not, they could, demand data from any Chinese company, state-owned or otherwise. So data that flows over Huawei built infrastructure, how safe is that? And just to give you a sense of how unsafe it is potentially, China Telecom, admittedly a state-owned enterprise that operates in North America, has been found to redirect portions of the internet to China. This would be the equivalent of, imagine that you were going to fly to Berlin but because the Chinese thought you might have some interesting stuff in your luggage, they could reroute your luggage to Beijing before it went to Berlin. And with the internet, you can do that. So this is part of what we're talking about. It's all about information, and China is building physical infrastructure with Huawei, software and apps with TikTok that could potentially provide the Chinese government with access to information on the scale of the OPM hack of a couple of years ago. With TikTok, Apple and other uh, companies have found that it opens the door to malware. Nobody wants to say TikTok deliberately did that, and motive is difficult to, to uh, demonstrate. But it's very clear that TikTok is not secure and that it allows bad things to happen. And again, uh, it's probably not a coincidence that some of, that bad, some of those bad things may well benefit the Chinese. Well, let's 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 dig a little bit more deeply into the tech question since it's such a big deal. I mean, let's. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate. TikTok is an app of teens jumping around to music, right? Um, they got into a bit of mischief with, uh, you know, disrupting the Trump rally, but it doesn't really seem to be very harmful. What is the national security threat when um, you're talking about the potential data transfers? Uh, uh, that that passed through TikTok. And let me add, Dean, just for our listeners, there is something known as the Chinese cybersecurity law, which I have read translated from the Mandarin. It does provide that companies will make data available to the Chinese government. Right. So why would a bunch of kids, uh, you know, basically editing video of themselves uh, at a uh, dance club matter? It doesn't, right? What matters is what else is on that phone. So for example, let's start with, what if the person whose phone it's on is the son or daughter of Nancy Pelosi, House Majority, uh, you know, Speaker of the House, or Michael Pence, Vice President of the United States? Do you think that there might be other information on that phone that might be of interest? Keeping in mind that, for example, um, if you're looking at 
World War II cryptography, it wasn't always necessary to know what was in the message. Simply knowing where the message was coming from or going to would provide a lot of information. Yeah. Would you want somebody to know the location of a phone that Donald Trump was tweeting from? I mean, there's all sorts of interesting reasons why that could be very disruptive. Um, so the problem with apps and software in general is it's not just the app itself. It's what else might ride along with the app. Think of it as sort of a virus riding inside somebody, right? It's not that I don't like you that I'm keeping social distancing. It's I don't like the COVID-19 virus that might be inside you. And that's the problem with the TikToks and other Chinese software is, and this is what Apple and others have found, it isn't TikTok per se. It's what else might be writing inside or worse, what TikTok might allow. Does it, for example, in a, in a, in a physical sense, jam the door open to allow other malware onto your phone? Does it extract other data on your phone? Your social security number, if you've entered that anywhere, your passwords, if you've entered that anywhere, your banking information, if you've done that anywhere, um, other software, your email list, does it extract that and squirt it out back to China? I, well, I will admit I recently bought a new phone and the first question I asked was, is it going to be 5G compatible? Uh, even though I am, <laughs> you know, in the national security uh, sphere, and I didn't ask whether or not it was a Huawei. I just wanted to know if it was my carrier. So those are actually pretty frightening um, observations that you have. Um, I also recall reading recently um, about uh, how challenging spycraft is going to be, even if you take these devices um, uh, off, right? A lot of the uh, companies, a lot of agencies are saying, well, you can't have this app, you can't have TikTok, et cetera. But um, there was a, a, uh, an article that we'll link to in the notes that talked about, well, if you um, are, are monitoring a crowd and there are two people without cell phones in that crowd, then you'll know which ones are the people that are from the three-letter agencies, right? So it's going to be really challenging if we're going to try uh, to, to get around these, these uh, types of, you know, uh, encumbrances of, of our devices uh, if, if everybody has one, if they're so ubiquitous. So um, this sort of reminds me, Dean, it's great to have you here. Um, we've known each other for a long time, but as Yvette has uh, noted, sometimes the absence of a phenomena then dictates an identity. Uh, when, when I was at the FBI, agents were not allowed to drink uh, on duty. So whenever we went to receptions, everyone knew anyone who said they wouldn't have a drink was obviously working with the Bureau. So it became kind of this issue. But the executive order on addressing the threat posed by TikTok, leased today at August 6, actually references how the Department of Homeland Security, the Transportation Security Agent, TSA, and all armed forces have banned the use of TikTok as has, as you know, the government of India. So we're sort of evolving these two operating systems, us in the West and China in the East. And part of this, as was raised by Yvette, we're engaging in multi-level relations, as you said, with the Chinese. And we, as you know, at the ABA, are co-sponsoring with the Non-Proliferation Policy Education Center, uh, Henry Sikulski's group, 
uh, a whole set of space programs where you and I just recently were engaged. And uh, it turns out that space is going back to one of your original interests when you were starting your career. Uh, we have just launched Space Command. We have made it clear that space is a huge new domain given the role of satellites and how important they are for both strategic issues and communications. So my question is, um, what is your sense about how the Chinese are dealing with the space and emerging space policies? And what is it, how do, what do you think we should be doing to engage the Chinese? How does this, the, uh, the quote of one of our favorite shows, in the last frontier uh, in Star Trek, we are now engaging with the Chinese uh, and of course the Russians, but where, where do you, what's your, what advice would you give the current or a new administration on space-related issues? So what I would say is the following. First off, for the Chinese, space doesn't matter. Now, what I mean by that is that it's not about the number of satellites. It's not about the number of rocket launches per se. What matters to the Chinese is the information. Space matters to the Chinese because it's how you obtain information, whether it's about the weather or what is going on in Iran or um, how you communicate. It's moving information. Satellite, you know, satellite communications is essential. And it's about being able to exploit information. Uh, pictures of tomahawks and JDAMs hitting the second window from the left, not the third window. So for them, all of what we've been talking about, whether it is the internet, whether it is space, whether it is undersea cables, whether it is apps and cell phones, it is about gaining information dominance. If you control space, if you can kill the other side's space systems, then the other side can't exploit it to move information. And that's how they see us both in peacetime, the strategic competition, and in wartime, the operational and tactical competition. So we don't. We tend to view space as a domain of war fighting and really a great place to make some money, but we're not thinking about it in the integrated way the Chinese are. So my first piece of advice to the Space Force, Space Command, the Congress and others is to take that holistic view, because I think the Chinese actually are on a better track than we are in thinking about it. In terms of arms control and the rest, first off, it's useful, I think, to note, China is not party has not been parting to any nuclear arms control. So they're not accustomed to thinking about it in those terms. Uh, their brush off uh, when it has been raised is when you get your forces down to our levels, we'll talk about um, nuclear arms control, but until then, we are not interested, which is interesting because at the strategic level, they are a fraction of us and the Russians, but at the tactical nuclear level, we think that they may well have as many as the Russians do. And this is where, the Chinese actually are, would make great lawyers uh, if they were rule of law, because they pay attention to every comma, every word, everything has meaning. And I mean, they're sort of like the Vulcans in Star Trek. They live for the nuances and the details. Um, they will abide by the letter of the law, um, even if they have to break it in a Procrustean fashion to fit what they really wanted to do. Um, so nuclear arms control is something, arms control in general is something that the Chinese, you know, haven't really shown that much interest in, except 
at things like UN uh, Convention on Preventing um, uh, Arms Races in Space and stuff, where they put forth very self-serving proposals, which breaks down to essentially, and they've admitted this, what you do is illegal, what we do is legal. Um, it would not affect China's ASATs that they've tested. It would prevent the U.S. from deploying a range of satellites and satellite defensive measures. Uh, so this is, this is really, at this point, not, it's a non-starter, I think. Thank you. Um, let's talk about two other areas where China seems to be testing Western governments viewing China through the lens of their own values. Uh, the first of which is China's militarily provocative actions in the South China Sea. And the second is China's greater assertion of its government in Hong Kong. So the Chinese have a uh, in the South China Sea in particular, it's fascinating. Xi Jinping promised President Obama that there would be no militarization of the South China Sea. And literally within a couple of months, we were photographing uh, Chinese missile installations, troops, artillery on these islands that they built out of nothing, right? These were reefs. These were submerged features that all of a sudden now have 3,000 acres of Lancer, I mean, more than all the others combined by multiple factors. And I've had the opportunity to actually ask Chinese officials about how do you reconcile surface-to-air missile batteries and non-militarization? The Chinese answer, and they are very serious, this is not sarcasm, those are defensive. And so I asked them, and, and, and this is in Chinese, I asked them, so a defensive weapon is not militarization? And they, the answer is yes. We always have a right to self-defense. You do not have a right to bring offense. That's militarization. But everyone has a right to self-defense. So what we have seen in the South China Sea is a combination of China operating the way the Chinese think. And by the way, they do honestly believe, in my opinion, that this is Chinese territory the way Chesapeake Bay is part of the United States. But second of all, they also are engaging in legal warfare. They are manipulating the interpretation of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea to suit their needs while defying international understanding of those same laws. And they've written about this. We don't read much about it because most of it's in Chinese and never been translated. And because legal warfare, to our mind, is defensive in the sense of how do I keep General so-and-so or Admiral so-and-so out of trouble? And the Chinese are thinking of it offensively. How do I manipulate and use the law to shape your view, your actions. Um, and the same thing is now happening in Hong Kong. The national security law is, uh, that the Chinese have passed for Hong Kong guts one country, two systems. And the Chinese attitude has been very clear. We would rather Hong Kong be a Chinese city, firmly under our thumb, than a global city, in terms, even if it's in terms of finance. We have always hoped that China would not kill the golden goose. The national security law basically says, yeah, if, if killing the golden goose makes it into a Chinese goose, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll do that, you know, uh, gold ectomy on that, uh, on that goose. Um, most recently, the Chinese, the Hong Kong police has issued a warrant for the arrest of a, uh, of a Mr. Xu. Mr. Xu is an American citizen, has been for 25 years. He's advocated Hong Kong independence. Under the national security law, 
uh, for Hong Kong. That is illegal. This is the fact that they've issued a warrant means that anyone who has ever talked about potentially independence for Hong Kong or opposition to Chinese rule may find themselves arrested in Hong Kong. There's a genuine Chinese saying that's not a fortune cookie. Uh, kill the chicken to scare the monkey. Mr. Xu is unfortunately being cast in the role of the chicken um, to scare, to intimidate all the other analysts, researchers, et cetera, out there who might run afoul, who might propose, who might study areas that the Chinese government, not just Hong Kong, oppose. So as we all know, we can't examine the US-China relationship in a bubble. All geopolitics is global these days. How does our posture towards China affect our other relationships? China is the number two economy in the world. More importantly, China is the number one trading country in the world. If you look around the world, China is almost always number one or number two trading partner of everybody out. This is, again, very different from the Cold War. When you don't trade with anyone, that was a Soviet attitude. One of the interesting things that doesn't occur is the rise of interest groups. There's no opportunity cost to having worse relations with the Soviets uh, because nobody's ox is being bored. In China's case, where it's a major exporter and importer, you have interest groups on both sides of that equation. You wind up with people who export to China say, we don't want bad relations with China. I'm making money off. And people who import from China, uh, the Walmarts and the Dollar Trees, are also saying, we don't want bad relations with China. They're our supplier. China is also intertwined in the supply chain. So even if you're not directly buying stuff from China, your sub-assemblies and your parts, your components may well come from China. So bad U.S.-China relations, in a sense, forces a lot of the world to start choosing between the U.S. and China. And nobody wants to do that. People like trading with the U.S. The U.S. doesn't engage in anywhere near the scale of intellectual property theft. The U.S is a key provider of security, um, a common good, if you will. So antagonizing the U.S., a real problem. But antagonizing China ha can, the Chinese have demonstrated, because they are more than happy to wield the economic uh, tool, the economic weapon, uh, has you know, negative consequences as well. So what you're seeing is everybody trying to thread their way across this minefield. How do we not antagonize the U.S.? How do we not kowtow, point of phrase, uh, to the Chinese? Um, how do we maintain our own information? How do we make clear to China that we're not happy about their actions, whether it's in the South China Sea or Hong Kong or towards the leaders or towards intellectual property? Um, nobody's happy. Uh, the problem here is that the U.S., has faced this now for pushing 30 years of intellectual property theft, et cetera. And since the past measures haven't worked, and since China doesn't really show much sign that it's going to reform itself, how do we get the Chinese to try and join the, the international agreements and things that they've signed? How do we get them to abide by them? Um, and yet not force everyone to make a choice between us. Well, how, well, how do we do that? I mean, <laughs> like we, we tried to put uh, pressure on them unilaterally. We entered into that trade war. You know, it didn't seem like the tariffs were effective. Like what, what 
do you recommend? So Dean, let me jump on uh, Yvette's question so that we kind of get you focused a bit, which is that um, we, we recently have said that we're going to remove companies from the big board, the SEC, if they don't follow our gap, the general agreed of accounting principles. Is that, as Yvette is saying, should we be using those forms of international levers? Because as the proverb says, when the, when the elephants are fighting, it's bad for the grass. <laughs> so um, what? Uh, so let's begin with that. And do you also think uh, we should be using more executive power that the president has been using with the recent executive order? As you pointed out, the Chinese understand lawfare. They're using international forums in the law to help shape behavior. Can you, as Yvette says, more specifically say, what you would recommend. And my final question in that area is, we have 350,000 Chinese students in universities today. And the universities are trying to figure out, given orders coming from um, both the National Science Foundation, from the FBI, what, we, what should we do with these Chinese students who are key to intellectual growth, but yet at the same time are being perceived as studying and removing intellectual property from our sort of key innovation issues. It's a lot on the table, but what, what pick those issues and see what, what would be the, the Dean approach to those areas. Well, let's begin with areas that I know absolutely nothing about, like finance and uh, <laughs> financial law. Um, so what I would say there is, uh, what's interesting is that Chinese companies were allowed to list on American stock exchanges and yet did not have to comply with Sarbanes-Oxley. And that is both an unfair, I think, uh, treatment. Uh, why should American companies have to go through all of the various uh, disclosures and Chinese companies don't? But two more importantly, as I said earlier, Chinese companies, they're not all state-owned enterprises, but there are actually three categories. State-owned enterprises, truly private companies, and these entities that are sort of the front office of a state-owned enterprise that's allowed to list without disclosing that the back office is actually a state-owned enterprise, which means that we have almost no visibility into how this company operates financially. Uh, and so allowing them to escape the, the uh, scrutiny that would be typical, I think that that is something that needs to be resolved regardless of whether we are in a trade war or not with the Chinese. Simply for the security of American investors. The whole point of Sarbanes-Oxley and these other things was so that companies could not do all sorts of shenanigans and pull it off and run and the like. Why would we think that Chinese companies run with the influence of the Chinese Communist Party would be better, safer than Enron? Um, with regards to executive orders and the like, um, frankly, I find this troubling. Um, you know, while some presidents may believe that all they need is a phone and a pen, that's not what the founding fathers said. We have three branches of government that are supposed to be engaged in checks and balance. Unfortunately, we have two issues with that. One is what happens if Congress finds itself deadlocked, which seems to be more and more the norm. But second of all is, on issues of national security, which is the executive branch, is that the right approach to take on tech issues that really 
overflow easily into economic and financial areas. Obviously, it would be much better if we could have some degree of executive legislative coordination and cooperation. Um, however, I'm, I haven't believed in the tooth fairy since I was about six. So that is to be hoped for, but I'm not sure that we're going to see it. So is the answer then to do nothing? No, I don't think so. But I do think that it is high time for the legislative branch to visit these sorts of issues, to say, yes, the president has issued an executive order, and we are also going to pass a law that supports it, or alternatively say, the executive branch has overstepped, and we are going to pass a law that goes against it. But to actually act up and act like another branch of the U.S. government, um, to maintain the science fiction theme, uh, you know, in Mars Attacks, the one funny line from that movie is when Jack Nicholson, as president, says, and I want to reassure the American people, they still have two fully functional branches of government after the Martians zap Congress. We don't even have the excuse of the Martians zapping Congress. Why does it seem that we only have two uh, functioning branches of government? Finally, um, with regards to students and, you know, in the United, Chinese students in the United States, one of the scariest things to me has always been um, the uh, Korematsu case, um, where the Supreme Court found that it was perfectly okay to deny the uh, civil liberties of hundreds of thousands of American citizens. Um, this, of course, was the internment of Japanese during the Second World War. And we go overboard. It's very easy to go overboard for a variety of reasons, not least of which is race. Um, and so the idea that every Chinese student is a potential spy, that's a very scary and dangerous attitude. Um, it doesn't help, of course, that the reality is that the Chinese have the ability to make any Chinese student into a spy um, through pressure. But I'm not sure that the solution is a blanket uh, banning of Chinese students. Um, I do think that what we have seen recently with the flurry of DOJ warrants is that the problem isn't necessarily the students. The problem is the professors. And the professors aren't even necessarily Chinese. That sort of thing is far more dangerous. And I'm glad to see that we are cracking down on people who are, frankly, uh, taking Chinese money and not reporting. So the second issue is, though, as you said, and we'll sort of round up, the, for, under the, the sort of the Declaration of Emergencies, the National Emergency Act, the president has the power to do that. But under our statutes and the recent uh, decisions, the Congress with a joint resolution can declare the national emergency over. But the joint resolution, as you know, requires A, the House and the Senate to agree. And then it has to go to the president for his signature. And if he vetoes it, it requires, you know, the to override. So as you've said, effectively, because of that requirement, the Congress has almost been taken out of the game vis-a-vis -vis this emergency declaration that's coming out of the executive branch. So uh, you've put your finger on sort of a fascinating element that's part of our system. Any last thoughts from either my colleagues or you, Chen, uh, Dean, that you'd like to talk about that is important that you think we should be focusing on in the ABA and this China-U.S. relationships? The one thing I would throw out there is uh, because you are the ABA, um, your ability to influence China, frankly, is limited because the Chinese are not a ruler. 
of law society. 5,000 years of history, there was never an independent judiciary. There was never a body of law as law that could be appealed to. But because of your interaction with other legal associations, especially in the West, but even you know, in non-Western countries, you do have the ability to help shape norms, uh, political viewpoints, to foster the rule of law in other places. And the rule of law is extraordinarily appealing even to the Chinese. There's a reason that they invest money that they expect to make a return on in places in North America, Western Europe, and Northeast Asia, all rule of law societies. So I do believe that at the end of the day, playing heads up ball through the legal system, through legal infrastructure, through legal education, is a key means of countering China's effort, which at the end of the day is ruled by law and seeks to erode the concept of rule of law, not just in China where it never existed, but elsewhere in the world. So, you know, as you know, China is a civil code country. They're not a common law country. So it's usually the civil code countries, the Germans and the French that have had the most easy way of interacting. And I'll end it with this anecdote. I remember a Chinese delegation coming to visit the Supreme Court and um, when I asked the key member of their delegation, let's cut to the chase, what are you really interested in our legal system? Fascinating, his answer was, I'm interested in the concept of punitive damages. And I went, punitive damages? Why are you interested in that? He says, oh, because it's a very socialistic aspect of your, of your tort law, that when there's a, a tort feeser, you can really punish them and drive them out of business if they're acting poorly. That's what punitive damages is. It's more than compensating. I went, wow, I never thought of it that way. He said, yes, we like that idea, using the law to force behavior of our corporate entities. And I said, well, that's, not, that's a very interesting aspect that you've read, but it reads right into what your analysis is. They really see law as an instrument, not as a constraint. Right. Perfect. Any other thoughts? Um, I would just say one thing, because we're the ABA, I think it's important to remember, to the extent we have referenced independent pending cases, uh, there is a presumption of innocence um, that <laughs> attends. Let's be careful here. Well, that's, um, it's called the Constitution, right? It's called our, our system. There's right? that, there's that yes. very uh, foundational document. Yeah. Dean, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. We hope you'll come back in the future. I'd be delighted. Thank you for having me. So we'll continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so you grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure, be sure to send us comments, give us feedback. We do want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABANATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at ababar.org. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on these fast-moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your smartphone or laptop screen. We said this at the top of the show, but it bears repeating. The lawyers and participants on this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone, and be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart, even though we all have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth.
The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.